Have you ever noticed what happens when someone brings up the issue of medical malpractice? If you're at a dinner party, you could be in for a long evening of debating very different perspectives on what's wrong, what's fair, and what needs fixing. So rather than have the same old conversation, it truly is exciting to hear about an initiative that's heading way upstream to better determine how and why things start to unravel at points of care. Less of who's at fault and what's it, but what's at fault and what's not systematically happening as intended that can lead to malpractice claims. Not always, but sometimes. And as we're about to learn, when the environment is the ambulatory care setting, the notion of fixing malpractice takes on a wholly different meaning because it can start to mean improvements that line up well with all the necessary work of transforming primary care today. A well-functioning, patient-centered medical home should, in theory, reduce malpractice claims. So we're going to learn why, based on some fresh findings and research and interventions out of Massachusetts on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome everyone to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. As many of you know, we come to you bi-weekly, and also for later listening and convenience, you can find us on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Now, PROMISES stands for Proactive Reduction in Outpatient Malpractice, colon, Improving Safety, Efficiency, and Satisfaction. And if we say that once, we can continue with the acronym because it will save time, and it's the story behind PROMISES that we want to bring to life thanks to the guests who've joined us today on WIHI. And as always, if you like to use Twitter, we welcome your tweets during or after today's program. If you use IHI's Twitter handle, at the IHI, that way you can bring in some others into the conversation. So I'm going to now briefly introduce our guests and a reminder that they have longer bios and all sorts of achievements and accolades on our own web pages, on IHI.org, on their own organization's uh, web pages and the bio slides that we share with you during the show that you can later download. Sitting across from me right here in the studio is Gordon Schiff. He's a general internist, associate director of Brigham and Women's Center for Patient Safety Research and Practice, associate professor of medicine Medicine at Harvard Medical School, and is currently the Clinical and Research Director of Promises. Welcome, Gordy. Hi. Damian Fulch is right next to him, caddy quarter to me. He is a primary care physician providing family medicine to residents of the greater Lowell area in Massachusetts. Dr. Fulch's practice was one of the intervention sites for Promises. Welcome, Damian. Thank you. All right. Nicholas Layden is on the phone, is the Director of and an Improvement Advisor for the Promises Project, and we're going to learn more about about what that means. Nicholas, are you there? I am, yeah. Uh, okay, great. Glad to have you with us. And Frank Federico is off my left elbow here. He's an IHI Executive Director with responsibility for strategic partners and working in the areas of patient safety, application, application of reliability principles in healthcare, preventing surgical complications, and improving perinatal care. Welcome, Frank. Thank you, man. All right. Well, we're going to start right off. Gordy, get right into it. Um, as always on WIHI, uh, a reminder that what we're trying to do on this show is kind of walk you through some very, very interesting innovation and things that are opening up possibilities for change and improvement. And what we do by the next morning and at the end of the show, we put together all kinds of resources so you can learn more because we can only pretty much scratch the surface, but we hope we give you some interesting food for thought on the show. So, Gordy, I started off in my introductory remarks talking about Mount 
practice, uh, I had thought of maybe just starting off and talking about diagnostic errors, both seeming like kind of the hub of wheels of issues. Um, but that's kind of getting ahead of things and a bit of a punchline. Um, ahead and behind. We did a whole show on this, as you recall, a year and a half ago. It was right. wonderful. That's yeah. right. And we'll remind people of that in the resources document because we looked at a lot of cognitive issues, um, particularly a lot of exciting research around diagnostic issues. It's going to come up uh, in this one in a very central way as well. Uh, so why don't you set the scene for us? Tell us about Promises, uh, what it, you know, how, how this uh, came about and some, some of the high level uh, learning from it. Sure. Thanks, Madge. So I, I think as uh, you implied, malpractice is a very uh, hot button topic. It has a lot of uh, political connotations and uh, angst. It obviously for practicing physicians is something that uh, is a, a, a big concern and uh, people, groups like the AMA spend a lot of time trying to lobby in relation to this. Uh, there's a lot of political divisiveness and, and contention about this, but there's a, a consensus that emerged that resulted in promises. And this consensus was uh, one of the issues is there is malpractice, uh, maybe with a small m, that there's things about how we practice, and you're going to hear some of this from one of our constituent groups, things that uh, go wrong in practice that could be better. So by looking upstream and trying to reduce malpractice, uh, that's an important thing to invest in. And that's exactly what ARC did, the Agency for Research, uh, uh, Healthcare Research and Quality. And as you'll see in this first slide, I think you'll put up here, uh, they put out for grants, and seven of these were funded nationally, which we'll look at in a second. But the three uh, things that they hope to accomplish is one, actually reducing preventable harms, actual malpractice reduction upstream. What to do about malpractice problems when things go wrong, uh, and we've been doing work on this. Most of the projects were centrally focused on that, and we kind of broke away from the pack, uh, as you'll see, and focused on uh, ambulatory air arena, where there hasn't been a lot of light shine. And then this idea about even when things happen that are potential malpractice suits, uh, disclosing those and working that out with the patient and early uh, disclosures and settlement. And um, the, the seven projects that were funded, you can see, were uh, different from the others, which really emphasized a lot of that disclosure and settlement. And several were based in obstetrics, which we know is a very serious concern when a baby comes out and there's something goes wrong and uh, lifelong, perhaps perhaps a medical cost that somebody feels a suit need, needs to sue for. But we decided to go into the ambulatory arena because it turns out about half the malpractice cases, when you look uh, at some of the databases from the malpractice insurers, are actually in the malpractice arena, gathering less headlines than somebody cutting off a wrong leg or a, a bad baby being born, um, but still uh, resulting in a lot of suits. And so we put together a group that really is this uh, high-level group that you see here, and we feel so privileged to be. Um, close to IHI, for example, who uh, you'll hear from Frank Federico, and we had a team of people who were very uh, schooled in improvement methods, and we brought those people together with the Department of Health, uh, which is the lead agency, Massachusetts Department of Health, and uh, some of the academic partners. I, I work at Brigham Hospital, and we have a team that's involved in some of the research and evaluation. Uh, uh, Sarah Singer has led some of our evaluation efforts, and, uh, and the other key group, which is in the upper left here in the slide, is the actual malpractice insurers. So these two insurers, Crico and Coverus, insure 80 plus percent of the 
practices, the ambulatory practices in the state of Massachusetts. So we brought them to the table. These are two, you could say, competitors. They usually don't work together. They compete to see who will sign up, uh, although they do tend to ensure different parts of the state, and the CRICO is the Harvard practices. And we went and started out by looking at the data in their claims data base. And the next slide, briefly, and we've published this, you can seek out the reference for the details, showed something very uh, uh, serious and uh, interesting. We looked over a five-year period. They put all their claims together. We anonymized them, so we don't know who's, certainly who the doctors are or even which company was contributing. But it looks, as you see, about 551 cases in primary care settings, and three-quarters of them, 72%, uh, were diagnostic errors. So that's the, the reference to that. Previous publications, previous looks in the inpatient setting and just in general, about a third of malpractice cases, which everyone said is, is the leading cause uh, was quite striking, but here we have two-thirds, more than two-thirds, and if you look quickly at the next slide, we'll show you a breakdown of them, again, just for the sake of time. We're just going to say a lot of these were cancer, and a lot of these were four cancers, colorectal, lung, prostate, and breast cancer, uh, really made up, as you can see, the lion's share of the total diagnoses. We, of course, we know about myocardial infarctions, heart attacks being missed, etc., but here we have cancer, and this is uh, what are we going to do to prevent the misdiagnosis, the overlooking of signs and symptoms and tests that suggest cancer. So next slide really talked about how we decided to roll up our sleeves. And well, I'm sorry, this is an important one. This slide actually shows when we looked at these cases in this pooled database, um, if you look at all the cases on the far right, 69% of those were uh, basically dropped or dismissed. When you look at the general medicine, primary care, and especially the diagnosis cases on the far left, 45% were dismissed or dropped. So, you know, you hear about uh, frivolous claims and things that couldn't really be substantiated. But what's happening here, to a certain extent, the, the malpractice insurers are recognizing that when they actually look at the care that was delivered, there's actually things that could have been done better, and they elect to settle those or even plaintiff victories in the, in the, if they do go to court uh, and for, ruled on plaintiff's behalf. So uh, this tells us, again, this stuff is real and serious in terms of uh, improvements being needed. So that leads us to the, the final one, I think, that I'm going to talk about a couple one that where, where did we go with this um, we, we decided that there's three plus one areas where we felt improvements could and should be meet, made and uh, um, and this is in these three ambulatory management processes managing test results managing referrals managing uh, medications and actually the first two we put a lot of our emphasis on that you'll see some of this from Nicholas and um, for example and then the, the one if you just go back for the one, the overarching one is communication because really every malpractice suit is really born in a breakdown in communication of some sort and um, uh, the, the ways that this happens and the ways that we can improve on this became a central focus of this project and really frankly all the projects, all those seven projects had this as a, as a key aspect. So if you just want to have one more flavor of what we found when we actually went into our intervention practice so this is a randomized controlled trial we had 25 practices and we ran randomly picked 16 of them to be the intervention sites. Um, we, t 
went and took a look at the charts to see whether test results, for example, were being followed up on. And the next slide, uh, well, back to that last slide. Sorry. Um, <laughs> actually, it's not showing the data. Is it? Is it uh, oh, does it get a little cut off there? There, there we go. There beautiful. We go. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, although the results are not so beautiful. <laughs> uh, you know, 90-plus percent of them were found in the chart when we went to search for some of these results. But really, only about 80 of the percent of them were reliably followed up, documented, notified the patient, action plan followed up. So that's 20% where there's, uh, we call them Swiss cheese holes, really accidents waiting to happen if these results are not being reliably documented and followed up. So um, I, I think if, if you want to just show that last slide about where we see the communication needs for improvement, it's really about these test results and the referrals. There's communication involved with this so the patient knows when they have to follow up and what the results showed. But then we're talking about between the team members to create a culture of safety so people aren't afraid to talk about problems. And then really with the patients themselves during the encounters, uh, I think you've had many programs addressing this and we can't emphasize enough how uh, some of these things are really critical. And then the final two really have to do with improvement, learning when there's problems and actually when something big and bad or even little and bad goes wrong, how we handle that. And we've tried to produce materials. You'll hear more about that in the program. So this is uh, this is what Promises is, where we went, and uh, you're about to hear hopefully how we went about it. Very quickly, I'm about to turn to Nicholas, but can you make sure, maybe I, my, I may have spaced out for a second. I want to make sure people understand, how did 16 sites get chosen, uh, yeah, targeted just, for improvement? Well, we just flipped the coin. We actually hoped to start with 32. We had them, we're going to have the malpractice insurers deliver them, but practices are very overwhelmed, so we even had uh, more volunteer, and we ended up with a cohort of 25, but we still, we had our two improvement advisors, so he said, let's pick out 16 randomly. We've tried to be scientific, so we would have a comparison, and we've been collecting baseline data, both in the intervention projects as well as the, the control practices. Okay, that's good to know. Thanks, Gordy. That's really, really helpful. Just a reminder again, uh, you can download the slides when you get off the program. John uh, provided a link right in the chat right now, and if you're on the phone, only if you want them right away, you can email info at IHI.org, and they'll be sent to you. All right, Nicholas Layden on the phone, improvement advisor. Um, I wanted, I'm going to sort of break this in two parts with you. First thing, maybe you could just explain what did an improvement advisor do with this project? Uh, a couple of you working on this. What was your role? Great. Thanks, Madge. Uh, can you hear me okay? You certainly can. Okay, great. Um, so the, the improvement advisor role, really the, the mechanics included two tracks. The first is one-on-one -on -one work between individual practices and the improvement coach. And the second track is really around shared learning uh, across practices when they interact together. So that first track, that one-on-one -on -one interaction, is what I think people are most excited about usually, what they want to hear about. So about once a month, I visit each practice and spend somewhere between 60 and 90 minutes in a quality improvement meeting with them and their team. Uh, in the most successful meetings, we talk about their last PDSA cycle and ensure we really made a commitment on the ACT portion, the PDSA, the ACT portion. Uh, and, and we would talk about if we needed another test of change on that particular area or if we were going to take on a new piece of work. Um, the, the variation in these meetings was pretty significant. Uh, who attended, uh, what they discussed, how long they met for, the time of day they met, 
uh, all of those were very context-specific, and I think Dr. Fulch will give us an example of what his practice was like. Um, exposure to QI methods was also quite varied across the practices. Some that had never been exposed and others who had gone through lean training or, or other similar trainings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, because of the variation, we started by asking practices uh, around the 3 plus 1 that Gordy talked about. We asked them what kept them up, up at night. Uh, and we had one physician who said that uh, once I want to know that once a referral is made, my team has the patient taken care of. Uh, another said we need to fix turnaround time for lab results. Uh, a third said patients call us too much for pharmacy refills. So really the role of the improvement coach was to unpack the, the root cause of these issues. Sometimes that would take weeks or months with these teams. Uh, but really to ensure that the team wasn't overwhelmed because they were taking on often a very big thorny issue for them. And so the coach was to help them take it piece by piece and walk through it. The last thing I just want to share is that second track of work that I mentioned. Uh, it's really, it really sounds more like collaborative and shared learning. Um, and some of your listeners who, who do coaching work and, uh, and are familiar with perhaps the Breakthrough Series model would be familiar with this. Uh, we would gather practices monthly on a webinar. Quarterly, they would gather face-to-face. And in between, the improvement coaches would share, um, we called it a, 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 a digest, a bulletin, uh, via email with some improvement ideas. So again, a, a couple of tracks. One was really the very close one-on-one, and the other was gathering this community and shared learning. Thanks, Nicholas. Uh, okay, I'm going to turn to Dr. Fulch, Damian Fulch. I'm just going to ask you very quickly, you kind of alluded to a few things uh, that physicians identified might be keeping them up at night. Would you say that the diagnostic issues, test issues, um, Damian's going to tell us all about loops and <laughs> open and closed loops. Did, was that an across-the-board problem at most of the sites that uh, where the improvement advisors were? Nicholas, did I lose you there? Oh, no, I'm, I'm here. I thought you were specifically asking uh, Damien. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was asking you from an improvement advisors, was that a common uh, problem across all the sites? Which, which maybe you can sure. answer, Nicholas, so, by what people actually worked on. You could probably even give us. Yeah, sense. sure. So, um, Dr. Fultz, we'll talk about those closed loops, but uh, practices worked on a variety of things. One of the biggest areas of work was really challenging them just to do something different. And that often manifested with thinking outside the four walls of their practice because so much of ambulatory care is about linking with specialists, linking with the pharmacy, even um, uh, transport or vehicle methods that get, that get patients uh, to those ambulatory sites. Uh, challenging these teams to think about interacting with those external players and giving them the confidence to do that. That was very different. Uh, the second piece is that they, they collected some data small pieces of data. Uh, people would say that they thought they had a good system, but they couldn't show you why or how. Um, or they felt that they had a bad system, but couldn't prove where the, the gap really was. Um, and so I, I think while you will hear uh, the themes that Damien mentions likely will, will match up with a number of the practices, there were a variety of things that I'm sure your listeners can imagine when it comes to referrals, all of the, the challenging relationships with, with specialists in getting referrals. No. Okay. The, the 
All right, good. Thank you very much. Thanks, Nicholas. All right, hang in there. Stay with us. Uh, Dr. Fulch, uh, Damien, thanks for driving in. Uh, My pleasure. From Chelmsford, the Lowell area. So uh, in promoting the, uh, today's program, and we'll throw that link in there again, we shared with you a great video that was done um, about where uh, Dr. Fulch gives a really nice uh, narrative uh, on camera about some of the issues with his practice, and we hope you'll take advantage of that. It's also on that same landing page. Age of promises on the Brigham and Women website, but um, it was really interesting to hear you talk about. I think people know they have problems, although Nicholas is just saying they're not. People aren't always sure what they are. You quantified that you had some forty-five thousand open loops, as you called them, uh, one way or another, result, rela- related to lab results, test results, and referrals. So, I'm curious, did that sound an alarm when you realized that, or did it slowly emerge that you had? such an extensive uh, issue. Uh, good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for inviting me today. Uh, when I realized that I have 45,000 open loops, and let me explain that the open loops really correspond to the same thing we're talking about. So every time uh, somebody is sent for uh, lab work or for an imaging study, it could be x-ray or colonoscopy or whatever, um, or is being referred to another specialist, um, you have to have a way to know if the person, number one, went, number two, the results are back, and number three, the results were addressed. And um, since the computer opens a loop the moment that is ordered, unless you close the loop, you are really not sure if the results came back. So when we're talking about uh, not being able to sleep at night, um, you always worry, okay, so I send this patient for maybe a biopsy of, uh, for a, a mass in the, in the breast or, or somebody for a consult with the uh, dermatologist because they have a, a funky-looking lesion, and all of a sudden you don't know if the person went or not and if the person has cancer or not, or if that problem has been addressed. So when I, uh, with the help of Judy Ling, who was my um, uh, coach advisor, uh, um, improvement advisor, she was fantastic. And what we did was we looked at what we need to do in order to be sure that if I send somebody for any kind of blood work, imaging study, or referral, I know with a great degree of certainty that that person, number one, did the test, and number two, the results are back. Um, when we looked at it, I had, since I have had electronic medical records for about uh, six or seven years now, and in the beginning this was not important, we had over 45,000 open loops. That doesn't mean that there were 45,000 uh, tests that we had not received. A big part of that was received, but we didn't know for sure if there were some that were not received. And that is where the malpractice risk comes in. So maybe there was some PSA that was elevated or a thyroid that was abnormal or a mammogram that was abnormal, and we didn't know about it. So it was really challenging to take my staff and say, we have 45,000 open loops and we need to close them. So how are we going to do this? They must have loved you when you said that. <laughs> but the first time everybody looked at me and said, 45,000? You threw them for a loop, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Literally. So um, basically what happened uh, was that we decided to assign 
one person for an hour. It was so boring to go in and, and, and look at all these loops, open loops, and close them that we had to assign, okay, so somebody's going to do for one hour, one day a week or whatever. But we were not going fast enough because we're generating new loops all the time. Uh, so then we had a couple of staff meetings, and we decided to uh, basically close the office for an afternoon so everybody would be participating in closing the loops. And it actually took us over a month uh, to be able to accomplish this task, but we did. And let me tell you, I sleep a lot better at night. One of the things that um, I'm curious about, David, I'm going to turn to Frank in just a moment, um, but were you, um, did you have any other indicators uh, that maybe you were vulnerable? I mean, obviously everyone's trying to do the right thing. I don't know how many, how many patients are in your uh, practice? Uh, over 2,000. Okay. I'm curious if there was, were there any other indicators? Damien's a solo practitioner. Yeah. Promises had between 1 and 10. We looked at small offices, right. and he was obviously in the one small group. Right. I'm just curious. I mean, if this hadn't come about, were there other things, um, evidence that maybe there were some things that you, where you had this level of these gaps? So uh, the problem is that you know when we say 45,000 loops uh, open, uh, it also means that most of them, as I said before, have been closed. The problem is it only takes one. You only have to miss only one loop that was really important. So uh, there's no way for me to know in any you know before if there was one person that I was missing that was at risk that did not go for the mammogram that did not have the biopsy that did not have the colorectal cancer screening and if that person comes down with cancer I am responsible. Okay. I also want um, I'm throwing up here a slide uh, again uh, uh, anybody who's um, uh, interested in in the slides who's uh, only on the phone you can get them from info at IHI. This is a wonderful slide of Dr. Fulch and a patient. And one of the other things that we don't have a lot of time to go into, but as among the things that really bubbled up was also having to improve on what's going on with screenings and follow-ups and making sure that you could uh, get patients more comfortable with that. you did put this picture up, let me just tee this up for Dr. Fulch. You know, you do these projects and you feel like you're making a difference and you're trying to understand and p-values and measurement. But very rarely do you actually meet a patient, which I did when I went and visited Dr. Fulch's office this day. I, I had my little camera that took this picture, whose life we actually probably saved. And, you know, often you say, well, this saved my life, but it's usually you're sort of skeptical even about that. But maybe Damien can talk about this one patient and how this flowed from this, this initiative that this, this project triggered for him. So this patient uh, came for his uh, physical, and I am trying to convince him to do colorectal cancer screening. He uh, does not want to do it. I do the next step, which is uh, stool for cold blood, and he came back positive. So we said, listen, this is very serious. You're positive. You need to have a colonoscopy. He agreed on doing the colonoscopy, and in his case, he had a polyp that had cancer already growing in the polyp, but it was so superficial that they were able to take a piece of the colon out and he is cancer-free. 
but but you hadn't done that process with the the fecal occult card right. until you recognize your vulnerability here. Exactly. So all of a sudden, uh, nobody comes out of the office. I mean, if the patient refuses, we document in the chart. Patient had refused. That doesn't mean we're not going to try every time they come. But at least we knew that we now know that everybody that comes in, we're going to try to uh, do the col- the colorectal cancer screening, and nobody's going to be missed. Okay. All right. Thank you. Well, I love that photo, and um, I. It- uh, thank you uh, to your patient for being willing to uh, share his happy feelings there as well. Frank Federico, I'm going to turn to you before we go to chat. I do see people are also um, uh, teeing up their questions already. They're good ones. Uh, we got a poll that uh, flew in. Um, and uh, Frank, uh, so put on some, uh, you, I was part of this project to explain that perhaps and sort of your improvement glasses. Uh, what do you observe uh, about this project that you think has been important? Sure. Match, thank you. And we heard Nicholas talk about how the practices were coached into using the PDSA cycle to model for improvement. So, you know, that's IHI's improvement methodology. We also worked with the practices to learn about reliable design. How do you design processes so that you can expect that they will work the way that you expect them to work and that you get the results that you want? I, I think it was interesting to see the practices adopt an improvement methodology because from the very beginning, uh, there was a little hesitancy. Here we go. Why don't we just write a policy? Why don't we just do some training and everything will be fine? Instead, they quickly learned that, of course, training and education are necessary, but alone are not sufficient. And what we were able to do was help them understand how small tests of change would would better get you to a point where you could develop reliable processes, things that would work. A couple of observations that I uh, had during the entire work together. One is they were all eager to learn, and which was great. The practices were all dedicated. And what they were saying at the beginning was, we really don't have time for this. Yet, as they improved their referral process, so maybe they rep- uh, Nicholas mentioned a referral process, a refill process for prescriptions, what they found was that they actually were freeing up some time because they were getting rid of the work and the rework and becoming much more standardized and gaining efficiencies because of that. So even the practice Practices that were trained in lean found an opportunity to incorporate the model for improvement into the work that they were doing. Um, another observation, which I think was really striking, it struck me from the very beginning, was when one of the practices, uh, just as Nicholas mentioned, was having problems with refills, and rather than try to develop this internal process to try to solve that problem, what they did is they went to the local pharmacy and they said, you know, we're having a problem with all the refills, and the manager of the local pharmacy says, yeah, we are too, and so to Together, they were able to figure out a way to make it easier both for the practices and the pharmacy and, of course, benefit the patient. One last observation that I have is earlier on, uh, Gordy put up a slide of the organizational chart of uh, how complex this was in all the organizations that were participating. And I think we all learned in our reflection that when you have so many players, what it takes to really get everybody on the same page, and yes, we were all dedicated to improving safety in the office setting, but yet we all came to it from a different perspective. And I believe very much that in Promises, we learned how to work together. Uh, it was a great effort by all of our parts, everybody together, pulling for the same endpoint, which is patient safety, and taking advantage of the skills that each of us brought to this work. That's fantastic. Well, I really uh, thanks Frank, um, and uh, I see 
this was a poll I didn't know about. So uh, of, of, um, uh, I'm, I'm as surprised as you are, but uh, go for it, folks. Okay. Uh, we're going to just keep going, though, uh, even as the results have uh, flashed up there. And, uh, again, that will be also information you can download at the end of the show. I want to thank everyone who's uh, spoken so far of all our guests, and uh, many of you now have uh, uh, teed up some questions. Wow. Well, all right. I'm going to um, get going to sort of scroll back up here uh, to see what, by the way, I'm thrilled. It looks like there are a lot of people on today's program from all over the world, which is fantastic. So hi to you from the various countries. Um, somebody even wondering about um, looking at some of these issues uh, in Ghana, uh, in Sweden, Netherlands. We've got a number of uh, places represented today. Um, somebody asked early on, it was an early question about nurses uh, and whether or not uh, there were some particularly, any particular findings. Gordy, maybe I'll start with you uh, about staffing uh, and roles and functions. I don't know if that was part of the design as much, but we had a program, a, a, a very popular show on just a couple of weeks ago talking about new roles and functions in primary care and who does what and how that some of that is changing. Any relationship that you found between improvements and also better uh, assignments of who's doing what? Yeah, Nicholas, actually everyone yeah. probably can comment on this okay. uh, just as well. Um, but let me just report that we've surveyed each uh, level of staff in each practice in detail about things that we could talk about in terms of teamwork, in terms of culture of safety. And we had some very interesting findings. And, you know, there, there, obviously in most of these offices, there was nursing staff. Um, the uh, we, we, we learned that perceptions of teamwork, that uh, the leaders and the physicians thought there was better teamwork than the nurses thought and the clerks thought. Uh, we thought, on the other hand, the physicians and the, the, the physician's assistants, nurse practitioners, they had a much more nervous view, I would say, of what happens with these test results. Other people sort of did their job day to day, but uh, felt that their systems were pretty good. But the, where the physicians and the and the, uh, the people delivering the care day to day, they they felt more uncomfortable and nervous about their system. So definitely differences in perceptions. Uh, and I, I would just say before I let others comment, uh, I, I think. The non-physician staff are the sort of the ground substance that, that determines whether you have reliable systems. Um, whether these these uh, results and referrals happen really depends on the way those teams are organized and how reliable their functioning is. And um, you can't have a good office without uh, all that those handoffs working. And uh, um, we're we're very keen on observing those and improving those. And that was a big challenge. Damien, anything that anything change in your practice uh, as a result? And somebody's kind of wondering, I, you, you alluded to it, but I'll just throw this on as well, how you're perhaps continuing uh, to stay on top of these loops. Yeah. So, so the most important thing, uh, as we know, is that if you don't incorporate your staff and they are not participating in the decision-making process, it's going to be very hard. You have to change the culture in order for the strategy to work. And the first thing uh, that we did was we uh, we asked our staff to get involved in ideas on how to solve the problem. You have the nursing staff, the medical assistants, the secretaries, everybody uh, participating one way or the other. They are the ones that are going to see the patient before I do. So one of the things I learned from Promises, and Judy helped us tremendously with this, is the first item in my uh, staff meeting agenda is always 
are there any patient safety issues? So that be- has become number one item. We talk about that first, and then we can talk about everything else. But if they are not on board, uh, you are at risk. Even if you have all these systems in place, they are the ones that are the nuts and bolts, and they are the ones that help to run the practice. Okay, very interesting. There's a question here. Maybe, Nicholas, I'll go to you, and you're welcome to comment on anything. Uh, ditto to you, Frank, um, which was kind of one I have in my back pocket as well. Somebody is asking, what's the optimal role of the patient and family? Uh, any any uh, indications of that from this Promises work? I was curious whether patients and families uh, were included either in any of the analyses of what's wrong or even uh, how to make things better. Should I start with you, Nicholas, on that? Sure. I'm happy to jump in here. Thanks, Madge. Yeah. Um, I would say if there's one thing that I wish the Promises Project had uh, been more successful in, it would have been in integrating patients and families uh, more effectively. Um, as, as our effectively collaborative wrapped up and as our intervention ended, uh, that was the basically the launching pad for a number of these practices. I will say because so many of them, the, their exposure to quality improvement at best was academic, uh, the concept of inviting someone uh, who wasn't part of the staff in to see uh, some of the ugly sides of the practice, some of the challenges, the warts. Uh, a lot of practices were nervous about that, and they wanted to get their house in order before inviting patients in. And, you know, as, as the collaborative went on, we, we talked about that, and, and really uh, one practice in particular did invite a patient in, did talk about referrals with that patient, and they got a lot of value out of it. So. Um, I think there are other ways to incorporate patients earlier on in the process, and uh, hopefully if there were a second phase of this work, that would be uh, patients and families would be a centerpiece of that. So, Madge, this is Frank, and, and there was an there is an end to what Nicholas is saying. Yes, we didn't bring patients right into the improvement work the way we would have liked to. However, the communications work that we did was very definitely patient-centered. All of this work was patient-centered, and we did spend a lot of time about communicating with patients. And it wasn't just the literacy discussion. It was very interesting that we also identified that sometimes the communication was incomplete. It wasn't just the fact that maybe we weren't speaking at a level they could understand, but sometimes people assumed that they had given the full instructions to the patient. And it wasn't until afterwards when patients were coming in, maybe they were supposed to fast before coming in, and they didn't quite understand what that meant, that we started realizing there's a whole component here around communication that becomes critical. And that communication is around how do you manage yourself? How do you communicate about what your goals are? And so we did also develop some tools to manage the uh, encounter. If I can jump in here, there's sort of three areas that I think certainly weren't a lot more thinking and discussion, but we we did uh, delve into. The the first one really has to do with the ambiguity of the patient's role in following these things up. There was a time when you said, I think you need to have a skin biopsy. I don't like the way that thing looks on your face. could be a melanoma. And that was it. And uh, the doctors documented that in the chart, and they felt they had no legal responsibility. They had no further responsibility. Um, But the courts have actually ruled otherwise. I mean, if you are suspicious enough, because the patient said, well, Dr. Fulch didn't really tell me how serious this was, and I didn't realize it, or he didn't help me get an appointment, um, that actually we need to actually go to work with the patient. So this idea about this tug of war, it's the patient's fault, it's the patient's responsibility, 
responsibility. No, it's our fault. It's our responsibility. We're just not going to get too far with that, especially in a court of malpractice court where everybody's pointing guns at each other's head uh, and the lawyers are sharpening their knives, but really figuring out how to make that handoff work better. So role and responsibility vis-a-vis these things is critical, and there's a lot more to say. There's a huge variation in the practices, whether the practice actually made that referral, um, whether the practice mainly just did the insurance approval. It, It was very confusing, very complex. For the sake of time, we won't go into it. We also put a lot of emphasis into um, the patient setting the agenda for the encounter. And I think one of the most successful interventions we worked on were practices that created variations of a piece of paper that the patients filled out in the waiting room, says, what's your agenda for today? What would you like to talk about? At first, the physician said, oh, my God, this is going to make my 10-minute visit, you know, go into an hour. But actually, it turns out that the buy-in was huge because actually cleared the air so the physician knew exactly what they had to cover. That was very successful. We did a series of PDSA testing of that. The final thing that's worth mentioning, and we're going to be publishing this, we presented this at some meetings, we asked patients for comments. We did a a patient survey both before and after, and we got a huge number. We were really surprised. It was open-ended. In fact, I think IHI recommended we put this open-ended question in there, and we got over 500 comments for the first wave of surveys, and we've, we've gone through them, we've classified them, and we've fed them back to each practice. And in fact, the practice said, well, I want to know who said that, or I want to know, of course, we didn't disclose the anonymity, but the the practices really uh, benefited from those specific types of comments. Maybe Damien can comment as a recipient of those. Yeah, I I actually was really uh, impressed uh, with the results and surprised. Um, You know, I I basically confirmed that patients love me, but there were a lot of problems with my practice. Uh, They were having problems with referrals, waiting time, how to make an appointment, uh, medications that were supposed to be sent that were not sent on time. And of course, this allows us, allowed me to go to my staff and say, this is what the patients are saying about us. How can we improve on this? So, and actually, there, I had patients that came to me and said, thank you so much because I have not been to a physician that wants to know what I think about your practice. So this uh, survey was fantastic. Let me just ask you a, a question that's also floating around in here, just uh, to make sure I know we cannot, you know, go into this step by step. What are the new processes that you're using to make sure uh, you don't get the same backlog of, of open loops? What, what are you doing differently now in the practice? So obviously uh, what we do now is every single test, referral, uh, medication, everything that is generated uh, for a patient is generated through the computer. So it forces uh, a loop to be open. And what we do is we close the loop, but we, we had uh, assigned one staff member once a month go into the computer and find out if there were any open loops. To my surprise, uh, recently I asked my staff when we were talking about this uh, program today, so how often are you doing this? And they are doing it every day. So at the end of the day, before they go home, they look and see if there are any open loops. And I think they were scarred by the amount of work that we had, and they will never want to go back to that again. So now they close the loops right on the spot. So we are constantly closing the loop. But in addition to that, we have one person assigned once a month has to go and clean the computer, make sure that all the loops are closed. Fundamental quality principle we learned from IHI, continuous flow rather than batching at the end of the month, huh? There it is in action. Right. That's really, really good. Um, either Nicholas or, or Gordy, um, there was a question in here also about somebody uh, talking about a multi-site uh, ambulatory, you know, or uh, many locations. 
Can you just give us um, a flavor of the types of practices that were part of the intervention sites? There are obviously Dr. Fulch's on the smaller side and, and others. And if there were any kind of critical differences around the improvements needed in, Nicholas, in larger. Nicholas, speak to this because we, yeah. we had a very special group of practices that he worked with. Okay, Nicholas? Yeah, hi. So we did have uh, one group of practices that uh, were part of our intervention, and they're part of a larger system. We actually didn't get to work with their whole system. It was just a subset. But even in the last couple of weeks, what they've done is the learning that they've taken from their, their learning was largely around referral management, and they've now created a plan to spread that learning across their entire system. And so I was just at a meeting with with that set of practices, uh, all the practice managers, uh, a couple dozen of them last week, about two weeks ago, and by the end of this calendar year, they will have rolled out this process that they've tested over the course of a year and a half, roll it out across uh, all of their sites. So the really interesting piece here, because we had multiple practices under the same corporate umbrella, those different practices were testing different ideas. So they weren't all stuck on working on referrals. Some were on referrals, some on labs, some on communications. So at the end of a 15-month intervention, they all had uh, learning to share and, and, and new ways to spread, uh, new interventions to spread across their entire organization. Okay, thanks. Anything, Gordy, you want to air, add to that? No, it was interesting. This yeah. this practice uh, group of practices was actually pretty advanced. They, you know, we had people at the beginning of the pack and the end in terms of experience, but uh, you know, many some of them had been to uh, Virginia Mason to you know observe lean or and, and learned very advanced things. But there was still help people needed to sort of catalyze the work around these focused areas. And as you can see, uh, this has resulted this this activity that Nicholas described is going on. Our our intervention is really over. So we wondered if these sorts of things would be continuing or sustained or catalyzed by our work. So this is especially gratifying, what he described. Thanks a lot. Um, I have a question that I think kind of relates. Uh, some people were wondering uh, whether you're a certified patient-centered medical home. Uh, no, I'm not. Uh, no, I'm not. Damien, and um, – and I suggested at the top of the show, um, or wondered maybe aloud, or do all these things align? Maybe I'll ask. Start with you, Frank. Um, if you're working hard on being a patient-centered medical home, is there a lot of overlap between what Promises is looking at? I mean, I in theory, it would seem that these things would line up. Do you need different kinds of mental mindsets uh, as as you're focusing on these things? So I, I I would say that Promises was an effort to improve certain aspects of care and follow-up of test results, referrals, medication, and, of course, communication, which I think is foundational in care. No matter what you're doing, I think you need to make sure that if somebody's having a test, that you know what that person had the test, what the results are, and you've communicated them back. If they've gone for a referral, that is communication amongst different providers, how do you make sure you close the loop as to what should happen to the patient? And communication, it doesn't matter where we are, acute care, home, whatever, communication is so vital for all of the work that we need to do. So I think that the lessons learned here can be applied in almost any setting. And to even be more concrete, um, this this activity to become medical home, to become certified, to put in the processes in place was going on concurrently in many of our practices. Um, in fact, when we tried to recruit practices, we're too busy doing medical home. We can't do this stuff. And uh, this we, we tried to make the case that these 
things greatly overlap and synergize. And this group that uh, Ashley Nicholas described g- got it. They said, hey, we can use this to take credit for certain features that medical home requires, this continuous improvement, this uh, information technology using to, to deal with labs and tests. So so we tried to use this as a selling point. It was a hard sell because the problem is the practices are very busy. There's so much going on. They're doing meaningful use. They're doing medical home. They're doing quality indicators. The last thing they need is yet another group of people coming in telling them they have to do a bunch of new stuff on top of what they're doing already. So we really did look for synergies, and I, I think they were real. We, we tried to, to, to postulate these, but I think in practice it actually did work out that they could you know, kill two birds with one stone by working on these projects, as well as getting the support and help that our improvement advisors provided. Well, and these practices are only going to get busier, and, um, and from everything you know, we know and are hearing about, and I think the synergies sound really important. Uh, Frank, you wanted to say something about the EMR? Yeah, I noticed in the chat room there was a big discussion, and also the poll focused on who has electronic medical record in place and what systems are they using. And I think one of the things that was interesting in Dr. Fulcher's example is it doesn't matter that you have technology because it just introduces a new set of problems. And you were very keen on finding that out and saying, so how do we use technology to actually help us rather than it become yet another burden? So although we're, and and Gordy mentioned meaningful use, although we're all moving towards implementing electronic health records, I think the key message here is the culture that you started in your practice, that safety is important. Electronic health records should be a tool to get us to that endpoint, but they may introduce a whole new set of problems we have to worry about. So a well-implemented medical record is going to be key. And, Gordy, you've done some work researching that. You might want to comment on that as well. Yeah, I mean, especially since there's been so much of the chat activity, it's probably worth spending a, a moment or two on this. We we uh, we d- didn't prejudge whether people needed paper versus electronic in coming into this. As it turned out, we had, uh, of the intervention ones, at least 15 electronic, one on paper. The one on paper actually went electronic in the course of this. One of our prerequisites was you couldn't be in the transition, so obviously we failed on that uh, <laughs> exclusion criteria. Uh, don't don't tell anybody that who's going to be reviewing our papers, maybe. But uh, the the um, uh, the fact is, I'll just speak as a as a practicing doc. There's never been an easier system that somebody puts the chart with a, t- with a piece of paper and the test result, and you just sign on it, and you hand it off to the nurse, okay? And that was a reliable system. So when we start putting in electronic systems, it's a disruptive technology. Now, it's extremely powerful because these electronic systems have result management uh, tools. They, there's these queues where your results are queued up. Some of this actual original development of this was done at our group. People like Eric Poon developed these results managers. Um, but people are struggling to figure out how to not be overwhelmed. Uh, I call this Sisyphus. You know, I, I, it happened this morning. I cleared out my results management box uh, a few days ago, and now I open it up, and it's full again. Right. So they push the rock up to the top of the hill, and it's back down again. But obviously, this does allow us to track. It hopefully allows me with a push of a button to send a letter to a patient. But So people are struggling with these tools, feeling overwhelmed on one hand, but actually hopefully getting their hands and muscles around using them as levers to get that rock up and keep it up. Um, so, so that's uh, 
that's useful. I think the, the EMR concurrently is creating a lot of extra work for practitioners. There's just a survey that 43% of the doctors think they've been slowed down by EMR. So to the extent to which people are struggling just to get their, quote, normal notes in, to document these other things. Um, so there's, there's a lot going on in real time that we observe. So we're in the middle of this sort of evolving place. What do you think, Damien? So what I miss the most uh, pre-electronic medical record era is that I would be able to look at the patient face-to-face and just write in my chart what I was looking at the patient. Unfortunately, with electronic medical record, you have to be looking at the record. So uh, I, I designed a little table that I can rotate so the patient can look at the, at the chart when I'm writing sometimes or not, uh, so they feel more uh, involved. Uh, I agree 100% that it requires more time to document. You document better, but you spending more time doing it. What I really love about it is that everything is there. Even my staff, I'm in a small office. I mean, we have 10 employees, and we don't talk to each other. We send emails to each other, so everything is documented, everybody that calls. And the last thing that is really helpful is I can go into my office from any part of the world and open the chart on somebody. So I could be on vacation in Tanzania, and I, if I have access to a computer, I can go and check out a, a patient lab results, electronic, you know, some uh, imaging studies or referrals that have come back. The, wor- the worst part is that you're never on vacation. Right. Okay. Um, some A couple people, I mean, again, have a lot of, I think, granular questions. Uh, some people may want to come visit you and uh, look at your closing uh, loop system. But you mentioned the fact that you found out somebody is actually doing this at the end of the day. Is this um, is this a rotating uh, role, or what, what's that person's job in the, in the practice? So, so uh, this person was one of the persons that participated in closing the loop. So she decided that she was... She would never want that job back, so she's doing it at the end of the day, and apparently this is something that I was not aware, even though we have one person in my practice that is in, is in charge of closing the loop at the first of the month or the 30th of the month. My staff, every at the end of the day, before they close the computer, they check to see there are only open loops, and they close it at that time. Are these all administrative uh, people who are? No, these yeah. are medical assistants, okay. uh, what we call outflow people, uh, even uh, the, the receptionists, because all of them participated in the process of closing the loop, so everybody knows how to do it. Are you the sole primary care provider in your practice? I have a nurse practitioner right now that is also working with me. Okay, okay. A couple people had those questions. All right, uh, John, I'm going going to just turn to you for quickly just to remind people about the form and then we're going to wrap things up so stay tuned yeah thanks madge uh we've had a a great conversation um, about improving ambulatory care today and that conversation is uh, obviously going to continue at the national forum um, next month in orlando Um, i put up a slide here with a few of the sessions featuring ambulatory care um, including extended learning lab on creating a culture of safety in an ambulatory care setting if you've never been the national forum features hundreds of sessions keynote speakers storyboards networking opportunities and the chance to see the real collective impact the improved community is having on health and healthcare worldwide. So we hope to see you down in Orlando next month Next month for the National Forum. For more information, visit IHI.org slash forum. All right. Thanks a lot, John. Uh, all right. We're going to kind of go around the horn quickly and wrap things up. I'll start with you, Gordy. Well, I'm... Uh 
looking at a document you just handed me and reminded <laughs> me uh, called When Things Go Wrong. Because as much as we try to make things go right, and you've heard about some of our efforts, uh, at least begun to hear, hear that, um, things will inevitably go wrong. There's uh, to err as human is uh, one of our uh, notions. But uh, we, we're very committed to sharing with patients when things don't go right. Uh, and uh, that can mean something as serious as, you know, you have a lung cancer and, oops, we now see it was here on the previous x-ray and somebody overlooked it or we didn't tell you. Um, so just a small thing. We're sorry we didn't get back to you in time and you're, you had to stay on hold. So uh, we need to change the culture of uh, rather this malpractice original culture. I was taught when something goes wrong, you circle the wagons. You don't talk to the patient. You just let the lawyers deal with this. And this is antithetical to really what patients want. And I think what we want is to really uh, uh, be very candid and honest and open up the loop. So we've produced a document. You'll be having the links to this. It was really based on an original document for inpatient uh, errors and disclosure that was done by the Harvard Teaching Hospitals. And we've produced an outpatient version. Lucian Leap was one of the uh, people on our project as well as that original document. And so uh, I, I, I commend that to you. We've reduced it to four pages because we know busy practitioners can't read through 40 pages. And uh, But it really gives people a step-by-step guide, how you talk to people, the timing, the reason for uh, disclosing things, and even addressing some of the concerns about won't this lead to more malpractice suits if we tell people about things that went wrong, which really the evidence suggests is, is, is not true. Okay. Thanks a lot. Frank? Sure. I, mean, I first want to congratulate the practices who participated because they taught us how to help a physician's practice improve quality. It's not as easy as is in acute care setting. As we heard, they're very busy, but yet the lessons learned are fantastic. And secondly, we're working on developing some enduring materials, which eventually will become available to many folks around the uh, the things that we taught the practices and some tools that we, uh, we developed during the work. Okay, thanks. Nicholas, and then I'll give the last word to Damien. Nicholas, you were also, thanks, Frank, you were also going to mention kind of just some next steps and what folks should be on the lookout for um, from the Promises Initiative. Great, thank you. Uh, the phase we're in right now is around disseminating our learning, and uh, we would be excited for uh, the participants here today, uh, the listeners, to to check out uh, the Promises materials. It's hosted on the Brigham and Women's website. We have a few videos out there already, one including Dr. Fulch. Uh, we'd encourage you to have an opportunity to, to view those videos, perhaps use them in staff meetings, uh, as ways to prompt conversation uh, in addition to using when things go wrong as a tool in the ambulatory setting. Uh, it certainly can't replace having a coach and having someone walk through the process with you. Uh, we'd encourage you to do that as well. But in the meantime, if you're looking for materials to help you along the way, uh, please do visit that site and uh, please reach out to us as well if we can be of assistance. Thank you, Nicholas. Damien. So I wanted to uh, thank Gordy for um, all the help that we have received from the promises. Uh, It definitely transformed my practice in the sense that now uh, we have learned that you take something simple, you uh, test it, see if it works. If it doesn't, you do another little change and you do the same thing. And bit by bit, you can definitely improve safety in 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 uh, for patients and in outpatient practices. And I think that uh, the communication is key. You have to leave the uh, doors open of communication, not only to the uh, patients, but also to the staff. Incorporate the staff, let them help you. They have a lot of great ideas, and you will change the culture, and that will change the strategy. All right. 
Well, thank you so much, Damian Fulch. Uh, thrilled that you could come in. Uh, Gordy Schiff as well. Always a pleasure to have you here on WHI. Nicholas, thanks so much for joining by phone. Uh, Frank Federico as well. Glad we could get on your schedule before you take off again for lands uh, far, far away, teaching uh, in, in many different locations. Uh, very gratifying for me. I've learned a lot uh, from preparing uh, this program. Just a reminder that you can download the chat and any slides when you log off the program today. Uh, lots of good questions. I really recommend everybody download this chat and you can see sort of how you answered each other's questions. Uh, we'll also have a, a version of this chat just uh, with a few things kind of cleaned up on it uh, posted to our website tomorrow as well as the audio and any resources that we mentioned today as well. Next up on WIHI on the 21st, we're going to be talking about leadership uh, with Derek Feely and Andrea Capsonell from IHI, as well as uh, two prominent physicians, Gary Yates and Lee Sachs, uh, leaders in their own right, and uh, just some new thinking and behaviors uh, IHI is putting together with the help of uh, many others about leadership skills needed for the kind of transformation we're all involved with right now. Any questions whatsoever, remember you can email info at IHI.org, and you can always feel free to suggest future show topics. And as John also said, if you take just a few minutes to uh, fill out a survey uh, when you get off the program today, we greatly appreciate your feedback. We have a great crew who help make WIHI possible. They include Mike Sweeney, Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Oleson, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Matt Morse, and a, a co-op from Northeastern, Stephanie Moncayo. We hope you enjoy our music that opens and closes WIHI. And as always, it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, thanks for your very active participation today. I'm Madge Kaplan. Be well.